What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I am your host, Mike Milner, and today I was joined by my good friend and one of the smartest people I know, Sam Miller. At Sam Miller Science, we talked hormones, neurotransmitters. We went over a little bit about neurotypes and some considerations for each profile. Uh, we kind of just talked about a, a ton of different topics from a hormone standpoint, gut health. Uh, Sam just brings a ton of knowledge to the table, so it's always a fun discussion. If you can do us a favor, if you enjoy the content on this episode, take a screenshot and share it to Instagram. Post it to your stories. Tag me at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. And Sam is at Sam Miller Science. Also, if you can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. With that being said, enjoy the episode with Sam Miller. All right, guys, I am here with return guest Sam Miller at Sam Miller Science. I feel like I can't say your name. I just have to include the Sam Miller Science. If, if you guys didn't hear our first episode, you should go back and listen. Uh, Sam is actually my second repeat guest next to my sister, so you don't have to feel bad about being number two. Um, so go back and listen to the first episode. We covered a lot of great stuff on hormones. Um, Sam is one of the most knowledgeable people that I know. And so I wanted to bring him back because a lot of you guys reached out and appreciated the knowledge that he brings to the table. And so we're going to dive into some more hormone related stuff. We're going to talk training, um, just kind of see where the conversation goes. But Sam Miller, appreciate you joining me again. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I definitely feel better knowing that it was your, your sister that outdid me, you know, family first. And I may be in the market for a new driver's license soon. And I know you are heavily, heavily in favor of a, a name change. So I'll keep you posted. Yeah, definitely. It's got to legally happen. Sam Miller science. Um, so let's just kind of start off with more like we covered some very specific topics in the first episode. Uh, again, if you guys haven't listened Stop listening to this one. Go listen to that one and then come back and join us. But, um, you know, we covered some specifics and I want to just kind of have more of a broad overview before we dive into individual topics and, um, you know, just cover a little bit about what most people should know about hormones. And so when I think about that, one of the things that a lot of clients come to me with kind of a basic understanding, but not really is cortisol. So let's start there because I feel like it's one of those things that, people know just enough to be dangerous. Um, and we think of it as this negative hormone that you know we never want to be present, which ob obviously isn't true. Uh, we're also going to talk about this from a neurotransmitter standpoint, since that's kind of my area of expertise. And um, there's a lot that goes into uh, from a neurotransmitter standpoint, you actually can't have any hormone response without neurotransmitters being present. Um, so let's just kind of walk through uh, what people should know about cortisol uh, and kind of what it is and how our bodies, you know, what that whole process looks like. Sure, man. So every morning, naturally, you should have what's called a cortisol awakening response. And cortisol is just a hormone that's a part of a family of hormones called corticosteroids. And that's just a really big sciencey term uh, to classify uh, cortisol and its closely related relatives. So what cortisol does is it, it is sort of a uh, catabolic hormone in a sense, but what it does is it can break down uh, energy for us. It can create uh, basically what feels like an adrenaline response where we're a little bit more alert. It's oftentimes referred to as fight or flight. And in the case of our basic human physiology or acute stress or acute bouts of, you know, str uh, straining or strenuous situations, we are able to react to those situations. We're more alert and ultimately we survive. That was really what cortisol was designed to do. And each morning it would help us get going, get underway and go about our day. What has happened over time though in 2019 is that we have more uh, technology and blue light exposure. We maybe don't get outside during the day. We uh, don't eat the way that we should or our workout routines are off and not programmed intelligently. And we end up with sort of this dysregulation, which is just your body sort of protecting itself. Uh, but if you had no cortisol, you would actually feel really crummy. So uh, having no cortisol at all is a bad thing. Having too much is a bad thing. Really, we're looking for this modest amount where we're getting a nice production earlier in the day. And then it's kind of tapering off as the day goes on. So I think cortisol does get blamed for a lot of uh, body fat across the world as a result of infomercials. But 
uh, cortisol actually does play an important role in making you feel alert and respond to stressors and ultimately your uh, overall day-to-day energy and well-being. Yeah, I think that was very well said. And it's often labeled the stress hormone because, you know, if you are faced with a stress, then cortisol will be elevated. But I think a more accurate way to put it would be the readiness hormone, because I think that um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a stressor. And then also when you think about it, so tying in the neurotransmitters, um, cortisol has to be present to make the um, conversion from noradrenaline to adrenaline, which is the neurotransmitter that kind of prepares us for that flight or flight fight or flight mode. Um, but it's really to make us ready for whatever we're going to do. So like, even if it's something like podcasting or, you know, take, like you said, in the morning, getting ready for your day, uh, we want cortisol to be elevated. Uh, and its main function is to mobilize stored energy, um, to allow us the resources to do whatever task we have at hand. Uh, so, um, let's just talk about that from like a, trying to follow that natural circadian rhythm, trying to follow that natural, um, you know, kind of cortisol curve where it's elevated in the morning, comes down at night. Uh, What are some things from a lifestyle training standpoint, nutrition that we can take into consideration to make sure that we have that healthy cortisol production? Sure, man. Well, you got to get press outside first thing in the morning, get some sunlight. And, uh, you know, you, we can also do things with our training and nutrition, but for the most part, I think one of the problems is we don't get a lot of natural light exposure. Uh, we're inside a lot based on many folks having more sedentary desk jobs. We're also can be a little bit overstimulated, kind of that wired and tired feeling in the evening. And so one of the best things we can do is, you know, besides just throwing supplements at things, which there are adaptogens that can be super helpful for this, um, maintaining a regular bedtime, trying to get outside, getting some natural sunlight, uh, making sure that you're going through the different stages of sleep. So we basically have REM sleep and slow wave sleep and then kind of a lighter uh, sleep process. All of those things kind of go about creating this daily schedule for your body. Uh, And then also keeping in mind, we don't want to make these drastic, huge changes in in how we're eating from time to time. Uh, It's generally easier for your body digestion wise and in terms of alertness to have some regularity there. That's not to say that you can't you know, fast some days or do some intermittent fasting here and there. But generally, you want to find a routine that works for you and combine that with proper amount of training, um, proper amount of sunlight. For someone who's having a lot of issues with circadian rhythm and cortisol, it can be challenging to train later in the day or in the evening because our, our core body temperature becomes elevated from that training stimulus. We need to ultimately bring that back down in order to sleep well, we want to be a little bit cooler. So as long as you can bring your body temperature down, training in the evening is not necessarily a problem, but usually what happens is people use stimulants. Uh, We also get our body temperature very elevated and we run into an issue where cortisol is maybe higher than it should be. And also we're, our body's running a little bit hot, which makes it harder to fall asleep. So I'd say the the top like three easiest things that, that people miss uh, would just be, you know, getting outside, um, keeping a fairly regular schedule. And then three would be sleep, uh, which sleep is just crucial for any type of lifestyle transformation. So really it's kind of the top thing, but, uh, you know, getting outside, you get some vitamin D as well. Our body has those receptors all over our body. So it just helps us to understand, you know, that what time of day it is, because you got to remember just cause you look down at your iPhone and it says, you know, 4.58 p.m. doesn't mean that your body's necessarily acknowledging that from a circadian or biological scheduling standpoint. And we want to make sure that you're you're on the same page. Uh, a little more modern technology is like getting blue light blocking glasses or something. If you do have a desk job or you're on, you have a lot of screen time later in the day, that might be a good little hack for you to uh, ultimately uh, shield your optic nerves so that your body can produce melatonin naturally since light will ultimately blunt melatonin production, which is a hormone that helps us sleep. Yeah. So I like focusing on the bookends of the day first morning and night and nailing down those routines, making sure that, you know, you're getting up and getting outside, getting some natural sunlight. And then in the evening, you've got that wind down routine, um, blocking out blue lights, you know, making sure that you've got a regular schedule, um, that sort of thing. So uh, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on when we talk about the cortisol response from training, where, 
you know, obviously we need energy to train. So cortisol is going to be elevated. Training is a stress, um, about the kind of theory of right after I'm done my session, I want to get in some carbohydrate because that's going to shut off the cortisol response from training. Um, and I don't want it to be elevated for too long. So what are your thoughts on that? I think the people who are going to notice that the most are athletes or people who are, are really going through some rigorous training. I definitely could say anecdotally from personal experience and client experience that folks have benefited from, you know, whether it's essential amino acids or meal, you know, having meals around training, even carbohydrate for some, some people that, uh, need that, that caloric requirement and also need the carbohydrate in sense in the sense of what it's doing with cortisol and recovery and, and muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. So I, I think it can work in many cases. I also think a lot of people do stress, um, you know, if you just have a general lifestyle goal and you're just trying to be in shape and work out, you probably don't need to like rush home to eat a meal and, you know, a 10, 15, 30 minute or hour difference probably may not be a huge thing for you. But I think if you're really trying to make drastic changes in body composition or you're an athlete or you have strength goals, I think then that nutrition timing becomes a little more important, but first we're, we're looking at overall calories across the day and overall macronutrients. I think some people move to nutrient timing before they've mastered those basics. And, uh, ultimately, you know, once, once you get to that level, I think it can certainly be beneficial, but if you're not at the right place for your overall calories, then I think we'd be focusing on the minutia instead of maintaining the bigger picture of what like moves us towards our goals. Yeah, I think that's well said. And so while we're on the topic, what are your kind of hierarchy where like, you know, nutrient timing is kind of lower, uh, on the order of importance, where do you start from, you know, let's just talk nutritionally, uh, what's, you know, your kind of most important, like, let's get this number one thing dialed in. And then as you move down, like, where do you place nutrient timing and that sort of thing? Sure. So, uh, from a recovery standpoint, I mean, sleep is crucial and then, from a nutrition standpoint, usually we're going to start at total calories or total macronutrients uh, in terms of what total energy balance is for someone my size, my activity level. I like to kind of zero in on protein and have a range for carbohydrates and fats if someone is a beginner. If they're not a beginner, they're used to tracking macros, I may get more specific. But usually I'm starting with total daily protein intake to make sure that they can recover and build muscle. And then from there, we can move on to greater specifics like the timing of those meals or fitting some things into someone's lifestyle, uh, depending on what's best for them. I've had folks who have a desk job where they focus a little bit better with intermittent fasting. They train in the afternoon. It seems to work really well. And then I've had other folks who based on their activity of choice, they uh, need to have a bigger meal in the morning and that makes them feel better. So we go to individualize the nutrition from that standpoint, but my nutrition hierarchy is, you know, calories, macronutrients, and then with kind of under macronutrients, prioritizing protein is very important. If you have body composition goals, and then from there, I'll move on to like nutrient timing and supplementation. Uh, on the recovery side, obviously, we're going to want to add in things like sleep there, and then just overall understanding like our nervous system and circadian rhythm as well, uh, because those can play a really big role in recovery, as you know, like talking about neurotransmitters and, and stress hormones and, and things like that. So that would be my list or my hierarchy, but I've seen it done, you know, a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much right on point with where I'm at. Um, so where do you fall in with food quality? Um, and maybe talk about that from a hormone standpoint, like, uh, if there's kind of, you try to get people on maybe like, you know, the 80, 20 rule or where you stand just overall with, uh, with the food quality discussion and the impact that it has on hormones. For sure. So if you have a hormonal condition or situation where maybe let's say you have, um, you know, leaky gut or metabolic endotoxemia, um, like a gut health issue combined with a hormone issue, um, just to clarify, like the gut health issue is important because it's going to cause us to have to restrict certain foods where some folks may just be under eating and have a hormonal issue and they just need a reverse diet, but not be restrictive on their uh, type of foods or food quality. So that'd be the biggest difference there. Uh, where I start to focus a little more on food quality is in the case of like inflammation and gut health um, or 
you know, someone with like an autoimmune thyroid disease, like, like Hashimoto's, if we have a hormone issue, that's maybe, you know, low testosterone in males, someone who needs to eat more, or maybe they need to lose body fat because they are obese and that's impacting their testosterone or conversion to estrogen. The first thing we're going to do is bring them to a healthy place in terms of their body composition. And that's going to help those, those new habits that we're cultivating are ultimately improving their hormone profile. Uh, but there is something to be said for food quality and the role that it can play in gut health situations, autoimmune diseases, and also just from a longevity perspective, trying to get all the micro micronutrients that we need on a daily basis. So I'm a big proponent, depending on your goals, anywhere from the 80-20 to 90-10 rule, uh, looking at a subset of your meals and, and making good decisions within your macronutrients and calories that you've been allotted. I think the more specific your condition is or, or issues that you might have as an individual, the more we need to dial that in. So for someone who doesn't have a great response to dairy or, or has digestive issues or is dealing with something like a gut health problem, like metabolic endotoxemia or leaky gut, you know, we're basically sending inflammatory signals um, throughout the body, both from the brain and the gut that are causing us to basically release stress hormone and, and other anti-inflammatory corticosteroids to try and address that issue. So where a food quality approach can come in really handy is like someone who needs autoimmune paleo or an elimination diet, because that's ultimately going to lower the inflammatory response at a lower antibodies and play a really important role in healing that individual. Now, if you're just trying to improve your body composition, you're just dieting or you're just reverse dieting and you have no pre-existing health issues, you may be able to get away with 80-20 and have some gluten here and there, have a little bit of dairy um, in moderation and still hit your, your calories and macros and move towards your body composition goals. We really have to like live between those extremes and sort of figure out what works for our body and our digestion and, and how we feel on a day-to-day -day basis. So food quality is super important. I think you need your nutrients, your micronutrients, but, uh, I think some people need it more than others based on how our body responds to certain foods. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, since you mentioned, that calories are kind of where you start or at the top of the nutrition hierarchy. Um, does that mean that you don't buy into the insulin model of obesity? I, I definitely, you know, I'm always a, a big proponent and, and try to spread this as much as possible. As much as I um, speak about hormones and love educating folks on hormones, I know that, that really the hormonal issues and obesity issues that we have I'd say I almost have like a habits-based model, right? So like, let's look at the person who is obese and maybe has caloric excess or insulin dysregulation. They probably have pretty bad habits. So for the basic person on the street, rather than arguing about what your pancreas is doing and insulin or um, arguing about calories, really they just need to make healthier choices and have better habits. And portion control and calorie control are a massive part of that, right? So um, I definitely am a huge huge believer that we can definitely manage obesity, control it, reduce it, and get people in a healthy weight range by using the calorie model. Uh, but I also understand what happens when people are making core food choices and we get glycemic dysregulation. Now, to say that, you know, just because you're on the ketogenic diet, you can't gain any fat because uh, there's less insulin than, than carbohydrates. I, I don't agree with that. And then on the, the flip side of that, you know, to, to say that someone's just going to get fat because they eat 400 grams of carbs, that's just an arbitrary threshold. Well, what if they're a CrossFit athlete or a bodybuilder and they need that amount of carbs that just all that insulin from the carbohydrates, not necessarily going to make them, um, make them fat or overweight or, or even might not even decrease their insulin sensitivity. So I try to pull back from those models and really just think about humans and their habits and, like, why did someone end up this way, right? Like, the guy who's super obese didn't get there by following a moderate diet, walking every day, and, like, occasionally resistance training two to three times a week. He got there because of certain extremes or maybe a metabolic condition or um, a disease or genetic factors. But for the most part, there are extremes that play into it. So getting people to kind of zoom out of that and understand that a healthier lifestyle and healthier habits ultimately would have prevented that. So... Uh, within both like the calorie and insulin discussion, we have to remember, okay, if this person is only, you know, watching Netflix and eating Twinkies, they're definitely not moving in the direction of their, you know, the, the health goals that we would, we would want them 
um, we would want them to be moving towards. But I think it all starts with calories. And then we kind of go from there um, and understanding how different macronutrients are kind of a toggle into what our hormones are doing. They kind of serve as this manipulation tool to get us in the right direction to control things like hunger and appetite, our satiety, our energy levels, and our recovery from exercise. And that's where I think, okay, now let's focus on what insulin does, what what a protein and, and glucagon do, um, why is healthy fat important. I think we start to strip back the layers, and that's where you fine-tune your plan, and we're having you know, a coach uh, like Mike or myself can be, you know, beneficial for you. Yeah, that was perfectly stated. Um, and I, one of the things that you've mentioned in, I'm not sure which podcast it was, but I've, I heard you mention it on one of the podcasts that it was like, we tend to look at these things in isolation and uh, we really have to take a step back and um, look at the overall, you know, landscape of things. Um, I think you kind of made the analogy that it, like it's like a symphony and there's all these parts that impact the other. And uh, so, you know, looking at somebody's individual situation, uh, we can't really make these blanket statements and say, well, insulin does this across the board. Um, obviously, we know like, you know, the role of hin- insulin, but when we look at, like you mentioned, a CrossFit athlete who can handle 400 grams of carbs and probably needs that to support their training versus just your you know, lifestyle person who wants to be healthy and live longer who may not need that many. Um, so when you look at it as let's zoom out and kind of take this big picture approach, um, do you feel like we kind of tend to look at hormones too much in, in isolation rather than like how they all you know, intertwine and, and what's your kind of thought on how to just take more of a big picture approach? Yeah, I, I definitely try to teach from the standpoint of layering things, teaching, okay, why does our physiology like have an endocrine system even to begin with, which is generally alert us to stressors to, uh, you know, regulate our food and energy balance. So what we're eating and what we're burning, and then ultimately to reproduce and like repopulate our species. So that's kind of why we have physiology. And then we dive into it like a layer below that. And we have, you know, those hormones that are monitoring, okay, what's our food intake like? What's our energy expenditure like? That's your thyroid hormone. Well, it's going to, it's going to integrate closely with, you know, female reproductive hormones, male reproductive hormones, because for a woman to have a baby is almost, you know, there's, there's some stress that goes into that. There's some perceived tension on the body. There's um, a level of food and energy requirements that are d- needed to have a healthy pregnancy and then also to care for that baby or to breastfeed beyond that. So when you start to think about, okay, what are the roles of these hormones? Why do we have them? And it's for our survival. It does allow you to zoom out, but sometimes to learn the function of a particular hormone, we have to look specifically at that hormone. But I try to get people to move out of looking at things in silos. And that's where I think the podcast you're referencing, I I think it might've actually been with Tony um, talking about, you know, looking at an orchestra and how there are different things going on at all different times uh, in the sense of nutrition, but also metabolism and and our hormones. So, uh, you know, I try to, to tie things back to each other. Like here's how thyroid relates to resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate. Here's how um, it might relate to our non-exercise related activity level and, and things like that, or how food relates to, um, our thermic effect of food and our macronutrient choices, all of which ultimately influence uh, metabolism and the equation of you know the calories that we're eating versus what we're absorbing and burning and giving us our ultimate energy balance. So really, um, you know, I, I try to give people this picture that that metabolism is integrated with hormones and the endocrine system, uh, and you know our nutrition and our exercise choices are ultimately influencing both of those at the same time. So. Uh, hopefully like through this podcast and and if you follow some of my other material, you you guys get that general impression, but it's very, very, very hard to, to isolate. Right. I mean, even guys in our leading cells, which are closely related to testosterone production, you know, we have some thyroid receptors present, which shows like, okay, why would our body have, uh, why would thyroid hormone be related to reproduction? Well, if there's no food present or we're overly stressed or we're, exercising too much probably doesn't make sense to add more stress to that equation by having more humans to take care of. If there's not enough food for the amount of humans that are there, you know, our body doesn't know that there's like a whole foods down the street or that we have a refrigerator close to our office. 
Uh, so when you look at a really basic level, you can see, okay, this is why these things connect. And my body is really just trying to protect me. Uh, and there's been a lot of different theories uh, related to that that have developed over the years. So let's talk about when we when we try to disrupt those natural systems. So like dieting, we're trying to like reduce our body size and, uh, you know, we're sending the signal that there is a scarcity of food and our body has protective mechanisms against that. So, you know, you might find that your hunger signals are, are ramping up, that your cravings are ramping up, that your energy is dropping, that, you know, you're more moody or whatever. You're not getting as, you know, good quality sleep. Um, all these different, you know, ways that you might not be moving as much throughout the day without even being aware of it. Um, how do we kind of mitigate or, or work around some of that? So I'd say that we can mitigate that through nutritional periodization. Um, so having a plan when you go into your diet of how you're going to exit your diet is super helpful um, and, and monitoring and managing biofeedback along the way. So you have to remember you can kind of steer your nutrition and understand that after some point your physiology is trying to protect you from starving. I don't really believe that you know as a modern society there's a great risk that we're going to do that, but your body all your body perceives is stress and tension, right? Just like if you were to go in the gym, your body perceives a mechanical tension or stress on a particular muscle. Our metabolism is kind of this thermostat that's looking at energy balance at all times. And that's when it starts to sense like, okay, here's where we're getting this down regulation or change. And I think with an intelligent plan or, or like the coach kind of monitoring you, you can certainly mitigate or alleviate some of those symptoms because you'll see things start to pop up and you're like, okay, let's pump the brakes a little bit or let's shift gears and, and kind of situate ourselves where we need to be to, uh, you know, continue to make progress without putting ourselves in a bad place. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Um, totally agree with that. I do want to circle back because we started to go down the gut health, um, topic, but kind of got sidetracked on that. But I, I did want to cover the connection between gut health and hormones. So you mentioned, you know, some certain, you know, conditions like leaky gut and how, you know, we need to take care of that. Um, not a lot of people talk about it. I mean, gut health is definitely a hot topic right now, but you don't hear a lot of people talking about it from a hormone standpoint and how those are connected. Um, so I thought maybe you could kind of shine some light on that. Sure. So with, uh, hormones and gut health, it's kind of like, you know, your body, I actually did a Instagram story on this the other day, but you know, if you had like a hole in your insulation that was leaking air out of the house, um, it'd be really hard for your thermostat to regulate the temperature and your heat or air conditioner would have to work a lot harder. Well, our metabolism and our hormones, um, ultimately do perceive the stress that exists when gut health is not optimized or we're not in a great environment for digestion and absorption. If you think about it, we're not assimilating all these nutrients that we're consuming or our body is perceiving this food as a negative thing as like a foreign substance. And so when that happens, we trigger an immune response and we also sometimes have an inflammation response. And so closely related to the hormone cortisol, we have other corticosteroids. It's kind of like if you've ever had, you know, uh, a skin condition and you get like a cortisone cream or you, you know, you're a football player and you need a cortisone shot in your knee or your back these or like prednisone is used for, you know, in eye drops and things like that to bring down inflammation and redness. Well, our body has its own system, kind of like a little fire department that comes to address that inflammation when it exists. And so when there's inflammation in the gut, part of that messaging system, we're signaling not only uh, pathways in terms of the brain, but also pathways in terms of hormones. So when you have that stress over and over and over again, your body is continuing to initiate a stress or immune response that's basically saying, hey, I'm not well, um, there's something wrong here, I, you know, I need to attack this. And it's basically like instead of your brain having a fight or flight response for you know, taking a test or something like that or, or having a big presentation at work, your internal self is triggering its own fight or flight sort of response uh, with, with itself in an attempt, but it doesn't really fully understand that. And then we end up in this vicious cycle where that's why a lot of times you can heal gut health issues by removing lifestyle stressors and also putting in some anti-inflammatory foods and just uh, overall easy to digest foods because you're pulling stress off the system in so many different ways, getting a little bit more sleep and ultimately you'll find yourself um, 
in a better place. But that's why sometimes you'll see things go hand in hand, like gut health and Hashimoto's or gut health and PCOS or gut health and post-birth control syndrome, um, gut health and hypothyroid, or even in the case of like testosterone, um, we want to make sure we're absorbing our nutrients and our body is happy with the food that we're giving it. And so that'd probably be like the most simple or directly related way of how to connect gut health with hormones. Yeah. And can, you know, would training be something that could actually exasperate that because of the fact that you're kind of sending um, resources away from, you know, if cortisol is elevated, um, your, you know, blood flow is going away from the gut, the immune system is kind of temporarily depressed. So is that something where if you are dealing with a gut health, you know, issue that uh, training intensity needs to be dialed back or just, you know, less frequency? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it depends, right? So if, if I had like a natural athlete trying to maintain a good bit of muscle, we might want to keep frequency where it is, or uh, frequency per muscle group where it is, but maybe total days in the gym go down or total volume comes down or intensity comes down. Uh, depending on, you just, you just have to monitor like how much strain or stress is this putting on the body. I think depending on how well your body's responding to like sleep and nutrition, that's going to influence the training. But I do think that uh, training certainly should play a role because when you're doing, you know, a really heavy lift, you're activating the central nervous system. Um, you definitely have a sympathetic response to that stressor. You already have a stressor going on in your body. So the better that you can manage the training and be intelligent with your volume is definitely going to help you heal and get over um, a gut health issue faster. I've seen a lot of people stay the same or exacerbate an issue by pushing their training during a time that their internal health wasn't really cooperating or on the same page. Yeah. And just to stay on the training topic, I'm curious on your thoughts on deloads and how you might program those in. Um, and if you think that that's something that everybody needs, or if, you know, I'm the type of person that if, uh, somebody tries to program a deload for me, I'm probably going to ignore it, but I'm curious on what your thoughts are. Yeah. So most of my general lifestyle clients that I've had in the past, um, you know, life is a deload in the sense that so many times with, you know, kids or work, people miss the gym, you know, volume changes, um, you know, periodization in itself, you know, was designed for athletes ranging from, you know, Olympians to professional football players. Right. So I think periodization is a great tool. I think deloads are important for athletes. But I also do see a lot of people in the gym maybe not training hard enough or they're on their smartphones the whole time or they're, uh, you know, uh, treating it like an ice cream social. And that's not really the point of training is to create, you know, a specific adaptation that we can adapt to and, and become uh, more muscular or more fit and endure, you know, more volume or, or do something faster with more density in a period of time. But so I, I would say it depends and that I would say athletes – typically do need deloads or structured training and uh, periodization in that sense. A lot of other folks who maybe don't have a history of hard training or struggle with consistency, you know, let's say you miss, you know, if you're training five days a week or you're supposed to be uh, for, you know, four weeks in, in an average month, you know, that's 20 training sessions. You know, even if you're missing, two sessions or four sessions. I mean, we're now talking about anywhere from 10 to 20% of your total volume from, from your sessions. And that's even with someone who's maybe a little overzealous doing five days a week. Sometimes I have folks doing three, four days a week. They've got three or four days of recovery on top of that. So I'm not, I'm not anti deload. And this is probably also a great neurotype discussion too. Like it's going to depend on your personality type. Some people can push themselves a bit more frequently. Sometimes people like to test and then back off and then test and then back off. And so I think a huge consideration though, is just like your lifestyle. And, uh, are you in a place realistically where you are going to push yourself and deload or is your training most of the time pretty steady Eddie and not, you know, not that hard work. Cause you got to think like the purpose of a deload is to prevent, like, you're not going to be in a stage of overreaching or, uh, doing that. But I definitely see a lot of folks who probably aren't training hard enough to really warrant a full deload. And then I've also seen the other side too, you know, athletes working out like 20 times, 21 times a week and not taking the rest that they need. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I do want to kind of elaborate on the neurotype discussion since you brought it up. So I want to kind of present to you, uh, you know, a different 
you know, personality profile and get your thoughts on some considerations hormonally when you hear about this, you know, particular personality profile. So if we're talking about like a dopamine dominant individual who has low levels of dopamine, but they're highly sensitive to it. So typically like your type ones who are going to be, you know, thrill seekers, very extroverted, super competitive, uh, you know, the leaders of the group, um, you know, they're going to have low levels of dopamine at baseline, but they're going to be highly sensitive to any increase in it, um, but also have high levels of serotonin or GABA, whether you're a type 1A or a type 1B. Um, so their ability to recover is is higher. They, they're more resilient. They can handle a little bit more stress. Um, is there anything when you look at those personality profiles that you think of from hormone considerations or uh, potential areas where they might need to pay more attention uh, and just kind of give me your feedback? Yeah, so just to recap, so we're talking type one, a little bit more dopamine present. They're very competitive um, and basically just going over some hormonal considerations. I mean, we could definitely, and I've seen it go both ways, right? But usually in a time of competition or acute stress, we're likely ramping up cortisol. So as long as we're putting that in a place where we're not um, chronically because there's a difference between an acute cortisol response and a chronic response. So we want to make sure we're managing stress hormone, uh, putting us in a place where we're kind of in between, right? Like we can have a little bit of that acute, you know, response each day, um, in a way that's healthy and, and go from there. Um, certainly you could overdo it and then run into some issues with, um, you know, lower testosterone or in females, maybe, you know, some cycle health issues and things like that. But Assuming that your food and nutrition is in line, I think a lot of the uh, the scenario that we're outlining here with the type one, I think you can like ameliorate a lot of those concerns with proper nutrition and planning the training program correctly. But typically, with someone who's competitive, you know what what we're looking at is all right. Well, competition is still a stressor on the body. How are we controlling that stress? Yeah, absolutely. And they're typically the kind of like burn the candle at both ends type of people. So to your point, uh, making sure that it's not a chronic cortisol elevation issue um, and that we're managing things from a lifestyle standpoint as well. Uh, so when, when you talk about type 2As, that's my neurotype. So we're adrenaline dominant. Um, one of the main considerations is the fact that, um, you know, we don't want adrenaline to be elevated for very long. It was designed to be this short burst. Um, and one of the potential issues is um, that you would desensitize uh, your adrenal receptors. So can you talk about um, just some considerations there on you know, what you would look at from nutrition, training, lifestyle to make sure that we're not doing that? Like, you know, I don't want to use the term adrenal fatigue, but kind of, you know, making sure that our um you know, adrenaline receptors are staying sen- sensitive to the adrenaline that we're producing. Sure. So we might be looking at something like, you know, quality post-workout carbohydrate, some breathing, foam rolling, things like that to help with more of a parasympathetic or um, not necessarily a state of a very high adrenaline. Uh, I don't know about, you know, you personally, Mike, but in a lot of cases, uh, you know, when we're looking at levels of like GABA and serotonin, on more of the relaxation side, opposite of that, for someone who's really struggling, if they're really wired all the time, we may want to implement some things from a nutritional and supplemental perspective that are supporting, uh, whether it's, because also think about it this way too, when you have a lot of adrenaline, you have a lot of cortisol, for some people that can also initiate, you know, something like IBS or more frequent uh, bowel movements and things like that. So we want to make sure that we're, we're managing the cortisol response, we're absorbing our nutrients, we're keeping the gut healthy, having adequate amounts of GABA and serotonin to balance out some of those stimulatory uh, neurotransmitters is, is how I've seen it show up in athletes and, and just clients in the past. That's not to say that everyone necessarily has to supplement or anything, but I think some breathing or meditation or just an, uh, an activity that you enjoy, that could be music, it could be walking your dog, things like that taking time to sort of have non-stimulatory activities because with adrenaline, you're, you're very switched on. Um, so having some strategic balance or taking inventory of times when you're switched on and switched off, I think it's, it really becomes more of a lifestyle discussion. But from a sheer nutritional standpoint, I think, you know, you can certainly combat some of the stress response or alertness with, you know, some carbohydrate and, and having some balance to your nutrition there. 
Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that because I was the last podcast that I just recorded with Sam Davis. I talked about how, for me personally, I have to schedule that time in for you know unwinding and decompressing and you know recharging my batteries. And that's something that uh, you know if I don't put it in my calendar, it won't get done. And you know, based off of my personality type, like I need that to to function. So um, that's something that I definitely keep in mind. Sure, and from what I've observed too, like you tend to do some, you know, post-workout carbs and stuff, and even sometimes intra, depending on your goals at the time to help kind of, you know, balance that out. Yep, definitely. Always on the uh, essential amino acids and highly branched cyclic dextrin. Um, so when we, when we talk about two Bs, you know, we'll keep this one, the next two profiles relatively simple because, you know, really the main consideration for a type two B is that they have low levels of GABA. So anything that we can look at to kind of, make sure that we're supporting GABA production um, and, you know, your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, So just to kind of recap for folks, I know if they follow you, they're probably familiar with this, but so many neurotransmitters do exist uh, in the gut. Um, Actually, so many things exist in the gut, right? Like we can do a melatonin test and uh, from, you know, that end of our, our body system and digestive system, uh, which is melatonin is a hormone, but still still important to have adequate amounts. Whereas things like GABA, serotonin, you know, we're also looking at, at the gut as well. So I think just preserving gut integrity is important. I think having balanced nutrition, we can do a little bit more with serotonin in the sense that uh, we can supply the amino acid tryptophan or L-tryptophan or 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is 5-HTP, to ultimately... Um, ensure adequate levels of serotonin. And Mike, you know, as far as other than maybe supplementing with GABA, I I know it's a a bit harder to just, you know, give your body like GABA uh, precursors per se versus like what we can do with serotonin. I think from a GABA standpoint, I I think it all starts with, you know, what you said, scheduling that time for relaxation and doing things externally to help you manifest, you know, some of the internal changes that are that are necessary you can certainly supplement from time to time you know in terms of rotating something that maybe helps you sleep or relax or calm down but uh you know we are you know so much of that is going to be dependent on like your total volume of of stressors but i think we have a bit more you know just from a nutritional standpoint supplementation standpoint hormonal standpoint i think as a human i think we have a little bit more influence on our, our serotonin but that's my personal bias um, you know, I'll have to dig in and, and see a little bit more on, on what we can do for, for GABA. Um, as I know that there's, there's even some studies out there, like how GABA is able to like cross the blood brain barrier and all these different considerations. And things like that. So, yeah. And actually by supporting serotonin production, you are kind of, uh, supporting GABA in that they both work to calm you down. Um, so if we have enough serotonin present, we're not as reliant on GABA. Uh, one of the cool things that, um, I've recently been looking into is the fact that when you do a ketogenic diet, it actually increases the production of the enzyme that converts glutamate to GABA. So you do increase your GABA levels, but it comes at the cost of lowering serotonin. So it's kind of like a give and take where I wouldn't necessarily recommend a type 2B to just do keto because it's going to increase GABA. They might have an adverse effect by lowering serotonin. And since, you know, like I said, they both work to calm us down, um, you know, you might be just trading one for the other and, and not really getting what you expected. But it's it's an interesting thing that, you know, keto actually does increase our production of that enzyme. Um, so as we, as we kind of move to the type threes, uh, they, you know, don't produce, uh, as much serotonin. So they're typically low serotonin over producers of cortisol. Um, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe just go into, um, a little more detail about, uh, what we can do from a training lifestyle nutrition standpoint to support serotonin production and make sure that we're managing, um, cortisol. For sure. Um, so I'm, I'm a little less just because personally I've, I've had less clients in this area and also for myself, I don't know that I'd really fall into the type three. So I'm a little less familiar there. But I think what we notice with the types is a lot of the same habits can be used across the types. It's just the amount and the strategy of implementing those habits is going to be different in terms of who falls into a particular tendency. So each type has a different propensity to like relax or be driven or, uh, overdo it. Right. Like our type, you know, 
our, our high achievers, our overachievers, the people who overdo it, burn the candle on, on both ends, you know, their, their need to schedule in relaxation or a parasympathetic uh, response is going to be totally different uh, than, say, someone who's naturally a little more inclined to be a little bit more easygoing, a little more relaxed. So for those folks, like they may need a, a little bit more of stimulation or central nervous system activation and things of the sort to sort of counterbalance what their natural tendencies are. Uh, but really what I'm noticing is our parallels or themes across the conversation is really understanding your strengths and weaknesses and then putting the proper program or, or system or framework in place to kind of address those uh, tendencies or imbalances and things like that. Yeah, definitely. It all starts with that self-awareness first. And then uh, kind of like we've talked about looking at the big picture, looking at the context of your overall life and understanding that, you know, each individual is going to have different requirements and needs. And so, um, you know, not looking at a blanket statement across the board. Um, so while we're on the, um, you know, kind of wrapping up the training discussion, I want to get your thoughts on, um, you know, just your take on when it comes to training around for females, training around your cycle, if that's something that you think requires, you know, specific considerations, or if it's, again, more of an individual by individual uh, type of thing? I'd say it's a little more case by case. And I always bring it back to consistency, because I think some of the people who really like to focus on these minor details, maybe haven't even optimized what they're doing on a macro level, right? So it's kind of like, you're focusing on being gluten free, but you're not in, you know, your calorie and, and macronutrient area. And, and, you know, maybe for someone with celiacs they can do that and but from a body composition standpoint we still have to equate for our energy balance so for focusing on cycle health i think you need to have consistency in place with your training and i would encourage you to keep a log of how do i feel during my cycle is my cycle regular what type of training do i normally do how does my performance change and then assess yourself if you would be a candidate that might benefit from that um, be honest with yourself. Do you have enough consistency in place already to observe your patterns and trends and make changes? It's kind of like when we keep a food log, we can determine what changes we need to make nutritionally. When we keep an, a log you know, about our biofeedback or our PRs, we can determine what's working for us in the gym and how we're progressing over time. I, I think there's certainly a bit of science that, that supports the, uh, the differences or the variances in what's going on. I mean, simply put with a, a female hormonal profile, we have changes and fluctuations of very, very important hormones across the month that impact fluid balance. They impact our energy, they impact sleep. Um, and I say our collectively ladies as for my clients and women that I've coached in the past, I unfortunately cannot relate to your actual cycle health on a month to month basis, but I just, I've been using the team, the team we, a lot instead of the, the you or, or, or me. So uh, just understanding that, you know, females do have changes in the hormone estradiol and progesterone and different peaks across the month that cause different reactions. And some women are going to be more sensitive to that and uh, it's going to influence their training. And if you notice you're able to be more consistent by taking a modified approach, uh, ultimately, you know, consistency wins in that long game and just being really uh, on top of your training and getting the work done is the most important thing. But if you're able to be less burned out, have better performance, better recovery, and you notice that that works for you and you're able to track, you know, your cycle, I, there's a lot of women who aren't even tracking their hormonal health or their cycle to begin with or tracking their training. So I think to jump from not doing that to trying to go on a cycle based workout program would be a bit of a stretch. I think if you have the other two in place, it arms you with the knowledge you need to make better decisions that are, you know, informed decisions about your training. Yeah, I love that because it applies across the board. It's that awareness piece that needs to come first. Uh, you know, if it's something where you think there's a hormonal issue, or you think there's a gut health issue, or you think that there's, you know, something at, you know, that's happening without any awareness of what you're currently doing, your current habits, tendencies. And I think that's where, you know, creating that awareness is needs to be the first piece whenever we're talking about, you know, hormone health or gut health or, you know, you know, nutrition considerations, lifestyle considerations without that awareness first, uh, we're really just, you know, throwing darts blindfolded. Um, you know, I think that is an important, 
you know, thing. Are you actually tracking what you're doing? Are you paying attention to how you feel? Do you have a regular cycle? Like all these awareness pieces that need to come into play first. Um, that's such an important, important point. So, um, I do want to respect your time, but, uh, I want to know, uh, you know, what you have going on right now. Every time we talk, I feel like, you know, I could talk to you for like another hour, but, um, I want to know, you know, what you've got going on that you're excited about and can share, uh, with the listeners. Sure guys. So I recently released my hormone blueprint ebook, which uh, is designed to help you understand how to reach your physical goals through understanding your physiology and the role that your internal health plays in some of the external health outcomes that we're seeking, whether that's body composition or performance or just feeling better and having better energy on a day-to-day basis. Uh, So the primary things we're manipulating to get to that improved physiology and, and improving our physical results are like our habits, practices, routines, rituals, and things like that, which are largely lifestyle training and nutrition based. So it's a really great book for transformation enthusiasts, fitness enthusiasts, athletes, and especially coaches who are going to be coaching their clients through this. Uh, There is sort of a layer of science that goes into it. So I'd encourage you to have a little bit of knowledge going in, but it is designed for a broad audience that can be applied to anyone who's like in their journey, concerned about hormones or wants to learn more. I think if you're passionate about the topic, you know, you could pick up the book and do just fine. You might just need to uh, pay attention to, to reading through how I explain things. But the blueprint is out and it is available. Uh, you can find that through my Instagram, Sam Miller Science, uh, which is the best way to kind of see stories and updates and general educational information from me. Uh, I also run a program for coaches called Applied Science Methods, which is my way to sort of educate and spread uh, science-based information and teaching people how to coach and articulate these concepts to their clients, uh, along with what we do with our own clients at Oracle Training and Nutrition, kind of on the nutrition and training side. But those would be my biggest things. Uh, and always feel free to reach out. I try to answer questions and stories, do Instagram lives and, and all that good stuff. And definitely appreciate Mike having me on. And I, I feel the same way, Mike. I feel like we get into a podcast topic and it could literally turn into like if they had day long podcasts, like I think we might actually be able to pull it off just because we can shift gears and segue to so many different topics. I know. And I have, I have a call, which is why I had to wrap up, but I, there was like a million different directions we could have gone with every single topic. So we're going to have to just do a turn the, turn the mics on and just go for as long as possible type of episode soon. Um, but I cannot recommend the hormone blueprint enough. Um, you know, Sam is somebody that I respect. His knowledge is second to none. Um, I put all of my coaches through a training with Sam. I know that, you know, my audience, I don't know what to call my audience. My, it seems weird to be like my audience, but, uh, uh my, my, my people, my people, um, I know that they love to nerd out like I do. Um, and so, you know, the hormone br- blueprint is, is an incredible resource if you, you know, just want to educate yourself and, um, you know, connect with Sam. He's super active on Instagram posts up you know, stories all the time and we'll answer questions and we'll get into various topics. So, um, I highly recommend give him a follow, pick up the book. Um, I have a copy. I'm going to encourage all my coaches to pick up a copy if I don't buy it for them. Um, so I, I just cannot recommend it enough and I appreciate your time, Sam, and I will, uh, we'll see each other in less than a month.